Welcome and thank you for tuning into the Bullseye Podcast. In this podcast, we'll be covering current affairs, pop culture topics, and trending technology news. Periodically, I'll be meeting with people to discuss their personal stories of hardship and success. For any topics that we cover or any guests that we have on our show, you'll find the bios and any other resources available. I'll make sure that they're posted with the podcast recording so that you can make use of them. Thank you for inviting me to your home to have a conversation about something that's very dear and near to you. It's been something that you've lived with for decades, and you also work in the industry as volunteer. Mm -hmm. And I know that this is something you're not afraid to talk about, which is amazing because we need to not normalize the events, but normalize the conversation and make it something that people can be comfortable with doing. Mm -hmm. So thank you for inviting me to your home to have this conversation. So that everyone knows today's conversation is going to be around mental health. We're going to be identifying suicide uh, tendencies or suicide warning signs. And we're also going to discuss how you can help your loved ones, families, friends, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to cap it off by talking about how to cope in the event of losing someone dear to you Mm -hmm. to suicide. You're good with that? Sounds great. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. The first thing I like to bring up is statistics. It's been hard finding statistics that are really up to date. A lot of the numbers I'm looking at are basically 2016, 2018, and some 2019. And as everyone should know by now, we're almost at the end of 2021. And it's been a crazy uh, time with the pandemic. And there's not a lot of numbers to talk about loss of life uh, during the pandemic. But I'm sure once we go through discussing the different reasons why people do go through suicide actions, you'll see that it will be uh, a huge contributor to any number of influx in suicides in the last year and a half, two years. And then of course, you being somebody who volunteers with the prevention group, you'll be able to speak to some of the more recent things that you've seen or have come in contact with if you can. So the first thing I wanted to bring up was some of the basic numbers. So approximately 11 people die by suicide each day. Mm-hmm. This is, I believe, in Canada. Right. Approximately 4,000 deaths by suicide per year. Mm-hmm. One third of deaths by suicide are among people between 45 and 59 years old. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among young and youth and young adults, so between 15 and 34. Mm-hmm. And suicide rates are approximately three times higher among men compared to women. Yes. Now, I'm not going to be spending this conversation talking about the disparity between men and women specifically, but Mm -hmm. we will bring up a few times that that disparity, but there's also the youth. There's also some numbers that we'll talk about between the ages of 10 and 19, which is very comparable between men and women. And then it it grows very sparingly from there. But we'll also talk about the LBG. And I I don't go too deep into the the other realms, Mm -hmm. for example, queer or transgender, Mm -hmm. but I will touch on those a little bit as well, because those are also incredibly important. I'm finding that the statistics are not they're, maybe they're not as clear or the studies aren't as clear. So mm-hmm. the numbers aren't as accurate, maybe as we would like them to be. But for the LBG, they are. Yeah. There, there's a lot more studies for that. So we'll talk a right. bit about that as well. So I went through the process of looking at some graphs just to try and understand suicide attempts and I hate saying successful because it seems like a word you don't want to use, but completion, right. I guess we can use. Sure. Somebody yeah. who was who killed themselves. The numbers are quite staggering, as I'm sure you're aware. Be 10 and 19 years old, it's about five 
people per 100,000 in a population Mm -hmm. for women. And just a little bit more than that, I think it's six or six and a half. So it's really close between men and women, the age of 10 and 19. From there, age 20, all the way up to 80 plus, Mm -hmm. it's triple. Men to women. We'll talk about some of the reasons why, but Mm -hmm. what are some of your thoughts on why you think there's a Um, a big difference between teens to 20 and plus? I think with the numbers, it's so hard to know exactly. And there is, I think there's just more openness, like just with mental health issues, say to begin with. Yes, there's still stigma. There's still people having difficulties with that and not necessarily wanting to be open. And and I would say not for all men, but for a lot of men, that can be harder to just even talk about those things. But I think when you're younger, there is maybe some better supports within the schools, either with counsel. Some schools have social workers. Of course, sometimes those programs get cut or things happen, whatever. But I think that as you get older, there's just differences with like I know there's big differences with even how people what method they choose to kill themselves and men do tend to pick often more violent means where women will do more like an overdose or something like that and they're also thinking a little bit more about like the impact on say the person that finds the body where men might jump more or shoot themselves or hang themselves and so it's like more violent but also a lot worse for the person who finds the body too in many ways but I think just, there's just like less, the older you get, I think the less maybe you're thinking about talking about things and particularly for older men too, they're just not, there's changes in that way, but for, and, and for culturally too. And I, I know there's different studies about that, but there's probably, it's harder to get numbers on that. But like a lot of different cultures see suicide differently and mental health too. And also, like, even religion and all that, and mm-hmm. how that plays into it. You brought up a few things. I'm going to talk about them um, a little later, but definitely the causes or the methods in which people choose to, to mm-hmm. commit suicide. You were bang on. Statistically, women are going to pick things that are going to be more medicated or pills. Right. And oftentimes, it's actually prescription-based. So it's yeah. stuff that they got prescribed. And I saw another number when I was looking through. It was like 73% of the women in the United States are more likely to, to be prescribed antidepressants. Mm-hmm. And those antidepressants, I think, are some of the things that they'll try to consume. And so what ends up happening is um, you end up with, I guess, different statistics. So you have suicide that leads to death, and then mm-hmm. you have attempts at suicide, which yes. leads to hospitalization. And the number of women who end up in the hospital from attempts are something like 10 times more. Mm-hmm. So there's 10, more, 10, per, 10 times more attempts to commit suicide that usually are done by way of uh, overdose or medication or something. Yeah. And then they end up in the hospital, they end up getting ser- service and help, and then they end up coming back out and hopefully better, but or maybe repeat, right? Yeah. Maybe some of these people are repeats. Where you're right, 100%, 100% men are a lot more likely substantially to take something more lethal, like mm-hmm. a gun or something. And it's done or if you are fortunate enough to live you may not want to anymore because something happened like you blew your jaw off or something crazy like this right so it's a lot more dramatic and of course like you said then there's the effects that are on the person who finds the person who committed suicide and having to deal with being hanged or guns or whatever right there's lots of things that happen so traumatic it's very traumatic yeah and so 
the third part of our segment, we'll talk about coping and the things you can mm-hmm. do to cope, but also where services might be available for people who might be hearing this and dealing currently with something or something in their past that they've maybe has been unresolved or, or just will continue to struggle with for their whole entire life because yeah. it's traumatic. So we'll provide some of those as well. So what are some of the warning signs of suicide? I know that you can probably give me a list and I'd rather you do that and then mm-hmm. I'll provide some that I found. So sure, yeah. what are some of the signs? There is a whole thing around just talking about it, and not everybody does. Sometimes people will literally say things like, I don't want to continue living. I can't go on like this. Sometimes they might be researching things. Now, again, they're probably not sharing that really with anybody, but especially in the age of the internet and everything, of course, there's all kinds of message boards and all kinds of different groups out there, and you can pretty much research anything. I don't know personally... of people who have done that, but I know that I've read stories about it and seen it in movies and TV shows, so I'm, I'm sure there's people doing that. And when people feel isolated, which I think is a big thing with the pandemic, and like you said, they don't have all the numbers yet because we're still going through it, and <laughs> they're probably still going to be compiling. For a while. But there's, a lot, there's been a lot of isolation. There's been a lot of people who have been feeling really lonely, and those things will be compounded. But suicide is really interesting, too, because there are people that probably have really like terrible lives all kinds of crap happens to them they just seem to be dealt like the worst hand in life if you look at life that way and they are still getting up every day and maybe having a hard time get out of bed and all that stuff but they're still doing whatever they need to do and there are other people I mean everybody's different some people I you could call it resilient some people have maybe more inner fortitude who knows and they just it doesn't take as much for them to be taken to that sort Extreme. of limit yeah. of that they don't want to handle anything anymore. I will say too that in just sort of not technical research that we've done, but in the years, which has been about 19 now that I've been doing the work with SSP, the Survivor Support Program with the Distress Center, a lot of people will say if they have not successfully killed themselves and they've survived it they'll say and they're talking to other people they'll say i didn't it's not that i wanted to die i just didn't want to live anymore mm. and that is a distinction because you like i don't know human beings are pretty we're pretty tough right that like it takes a lot to get rid of most of us so we and we have lived like a lot of us have lived through wars and all kinds of traumatic things but if you just don't want to live anymore, it doesn't mean that you necessarily want to die, but you don't want your life how it is. So you have to either try to figure out that maybe that's needing medication, that maybe that's needing some other change. If you feel like you've tried all those avenues and they haven't been successful, then that's when people may start looking towards suicide as an option. And even though it doesn't always make sense to people who have never thought about killing themselves, because most people have at least had that thought in their head maybe, Mm. but if you haven't seriously thought about it, it can actually give you like a little bit of a sense of hope sometimes because you have this option. And that's why sometimes people are doing better and people will say to us, oh, but they were so happy and they seemed so positive and then they killed themselves. It's because they had made that decision to kill themselves and it gave them a little bit of hope which sounds you know, very odd for most people and for people who have never had those feelings or have like really strong, good mental health. But if yeah. you struggle with any of those things, you might be able to relate to those thoughts. So. 
So you mentioned a few things. So some of the warning signs are talking about not wanting to live anymore. And some of those are the more obvious ones. But what about things like withdrawing from your friend's family and activities? So if you're somebody who's typically the go-getter, they're out there, and then all of a sudden they're more recluse and they're For staying sure. home and not wanting to go out. Which has been tricky with COVID too, because of course people haven't been able to go, go out. out. So do you even know? And I know... And I'm sure it's happened for other people too. And I don't think people were worried about me necessarily being depressed or anything like that. But I was posting probably more on social media, not crazily, but I was probably putting up more things on Facebook or whatever. So at the beginning Mm -hmm. of the pandemic, way back in 2020, I did have some friends reach out to me maybe with like in the first month or two because, yeah, they were just like, oh, hey, you used to post more. Now you're not so much. Are you okay? So. There are those things where you just, yeah, if you notice a change in someone's behavior, if they are normally, yeah, much more outgoing or talking, texting, whatever, and in contact with people, and they don't seem to be, it is a good idea to reach out to people. And yeah, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily thinking of killing themselves, but they might just be really having a hard time. And for a lot of people, even though we all say, oh, just reach out, like everybody would post things like my house, my kitchen's always open. My home is always open. There's always a pot of coffee or a pot of tea on. And it's a lovely sentiment. But for someone who's going through those feelings, whether they be depression, whether they want to kill themselves, it'd be very challenging to pick up a phone or text somebody or do whatever and say, yeah, you know what? I really feel horrible and I need some help. Like That can be really difficult. It's much easier to let yourself to stay isolated and you may not feel you deserve the help you may not feel anybody like wants to help you you may not think you have anybody maybe you don't want to be a burden to that person you don't want to be a burden even though they've opened their home to you you're just like i don't want to go and air all my dirty laundry like and and that's for a lot of people they just they're private about their stuff so it's you can't expect someone who's always been guarded and a bit more private about their life and their struggles to suddenly be like super open Right. When they, if they're going through something serious. Yeah. And you may not, like for a lot of people, you might not have any idea. And that's part of the hard part with losing some to suicide is that if you don't have that sense, then it can be very like shocking because they're like, wow, I had no idea that person was going through that struggle. Exactly. So a few other things here that we can see that are typical behaviors of someone that might suggest that someone's at risk of suicide could also be things like increased in substance use. So if like somebody's drinking mm-hmm. more or doing drugs that they maybe don't didn't do before, or if there's somebody who did it casually before and they're doing it way more now, mm-hmm. cha- those changes in behavior, as well as feeling trapped or other, no way out of a situation. And, and that's not so uncommon. People have no you know, problem complaining about certain things happening in their life, but you have to right. read between the lines. Yep. Right. Exactly. Um, feeling hopeless about the future. So the pandemic is a great one at that. Like, when mm-hmm. is this going to end? When do I get to go back to my job? Or yeah. when do I get to leave my house? Because I've been sitting in a one bedroom basement apartment for the last year mm-hmm. and a half, two years, and I'm yeah. going stir crazy. And this can really impact people talking about being a burden to someone or being being in an unbearable pain or even anxiety or significant mood changes, um, as in like maybe you're seeing them angry or more sad or helpless, mm-hmm. just feeling you can, you, a lot of times if you pay attention to people, especially these people that you care about, you'll notice those behaviors. They'll get, yeah. You'll notice they're sad or something's off and we should reach out to those people. We want to make sure. sure. And going back to like you said, it's more than just saying, hey, you can come over to my house anytime. Mm. We can talk. It's more like get in your car and go visit them Yeah, and just do it. Yeah. 
And that's hard for people, but sometimes that's the step that needs to that needs to happen. Yeah. Okay, so I break off a few things here and I wanted to just I wanted to talk about the three different main areas that I did my research on and just talk about them individually. So the first one is women and suicide. Statistically, I think I said before, women attempt suicide two or three times more often than men. Suicide attempts happen 10 times more often than suicide deaths in women. So right. It's a big number. It's a big difference. So there's a lot more attempts. The result is usually a survivor of a, a suicide attempt. Some of the leading causes, this was such a leading cause that it actually had its own section and it was depression, mm-hmm. specifically with women. It says depression disproportionately affects them and they are two times more likely than men to suffer from depression. Mm-hmm. Some of the risk factors that lead directly to women in depression is postpartum. Yep and perinatal yes so the, and i know that a lot of people will think well aren't those the same they're not totally the same postpartum is usually immediately after giving birth right but perinatal is the year after mm-hmm. everything transitioning back into normalcy i guess you could say like yeah. not being pregnant anymore and right. but then also there's a lot that comes with being a mother we're not going to go down that road because mm-hmm. it's a big one but yeah being a mother can be really trying if you've got a great support partner that's mm-hmm. also there with you, then that can make things easier. But at the same time, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're not going to have postpartum. Oh, so there's exactly. postpartum is almost, it, it can be uncontrollable. It can happen. Mm-hmm. And the key part is identifying if you're going through that, your partner should identify if you're going through that. And you definitely need to get help. Definitely. Yep. Do you have any, do you have any comments about? Oh, I would just say for that. And yeah, I know it's like a huge topic and that would be a great podcast to do if you find a woman or a couple women or whatever, because I know there's lots of stories out there, but I would say just for women in general and certainly for mothers, um, but we are just supposed to be like so happy and making everybody else happy and so happy. And all my friends have been moms and yes, I've never given birth. But all my friends who have kids, it's just, you have to be happy 24-7. And if you ever like to say, oh, I'm tired or, wow, I didn't expect this or this kid's driving me crazy or whatever you might <laughs> say, my baby doesn't sleep, they have college, whatever. People just jump all over that and Gigi. act like you're so ungrateful yeah. and you should. So it's, I think there's a lot of pressure on women and there's just in general to just be ha- happy and accommodating and please everybody and all that stuff, which some women have issues with that more than others. Mm-hmm. But also just the, it's really hard to talk about. You can't really talk about because there is so much judgment. Even if like how you're breastfeeding or how you're allowing your kid to sleep, people are going to judge you. So imagine if you're like, oh my God, I don't, I don't really know. Am I being a good mother? I'm not loving it every second. And then you also, of course, have, and maybe this is, you didn't realize this before, but a woman, of course, can have depression and have kind of other things and maybe nothing's been diagnosed so then you give birth and then that can trigger certain Triggers things it. too so yeah. you may not people a lot of women may not realize that they have that and then they give birth and they're like oh my goodness and i don't if you're connected with a great support yes like for your partner like you said but a great counselor if you have a therapist but i'm not really sure honestly like family doctors and stuff i don't know if everybody if they're going and saying i feel like i'm losing my mind and i'm not like super thrilled to be a mom can you help me i know they're taking more seriously but i don't know if every doctor really would know necessarily how to support that person yeah and what to say to them beyond just oh you should be happy or here's some pills or whatever right (laughs) and that's what happens 
right? So, you know. 70 some percent, again, they're getting antidepressants and maybe that's the, maybe that's the answer, yeah. generally speaking. Yeah, so those are good points. You're, I, I agree. I think I should do a segment on postpartum and perinatal yeah. period, just depression, or even just coping and dealing and managing and getting yeah. through that period of time. Because even people who are not predisposed to being depressed or exactly. whatever, it's still going to be very trying. It's a very difficult time. And some people, it's easy to get through that stage. And some yeah. people, it's incredibly difficult. So there's all the stuff just about getting your pre baby body back and just accepting that maybe you never will and what is the big deal about that but so many women and certainly women that are on social media that i follow some of them like the birds papaya she's great because she talks about that because she's had a baby and guess what you're gonna have stretch marks and you're gonna have cellulite and you probably had that stuff before but if you didn't you're definitely gonna have it with pregnancy and your body may not return and that's okay but there of course there's celebrities like going back to their great bodies like 10 weeks later or whatever because they have a trainer or they're scheduling to have a cesarean yeah. six weeks early so that way they can get that extra oomph to their body back which just sends the wrong message yeah. to everyone and i get it that like those people like that's a profession of course you're an actor you're, you're model whatever obviously how your body looks is pretty key to your profession i understand right. that but it does put pressure on the normal <laughs> regular woman yes. to, oh my god there's something wrong with you i i and sometimes like sometimes Things just change in your body. Your hips widen. They don't go back or whatever. And you have to sort of accept that and be okay with that. We can talk a little bit more about some of the risk factors. So some other ones are domestic violence. Obviously, that's going to be a a big deal and probably, unfortunately, very common in Mm -hmm. our culture. Some other ones that are maybe lower in the commonality but still also happening enough are childhood sexual abuse that they've had to deal with, eating disorders, which goes into your body image, and also body image issues is the last one as well. Eating disorders is on its own because it rightfully has its own place, but some Eating, or, uh, eating disorders stem from body image issues. So yeah. those kind of go hand in hand a little bit, but they are separate and apart. But interestingly, uh, during my research, I found that there are some prevention factors. So one of the mm-hmm. things I wanted to do is I wanted to say, okay, how often is it happening? Mm-hmm. Why is it happening? What stops it from happening in some cases or mm-hmm. prevents it from happening? And then how can I put people in the right point people in the right direction to get help that's kind of my approach when i was researching right so some of the prevention so even though postpartum itself is something that triggers depression Mm -hmm. being pregnant is a is a a preventative factor or a protection right you protect yourself more when you're pregnant because yep. you you feel like you have purpose or mm-hmm. you've, you're doing something other than for yourself. So uh, that motherhood. So interestingly yeah. enough, it's the opposite. And after one year, willingness to seek help. So if a person is open to having conversations with people and mm-hmm. saying, hey, I've got a problem or speaking to a group of girlfriends and saying and reaching out to your close friend and getting help or having a support from, from a family. So some families are far more supportive than others. Yeah. And that can also to a protection factor. And then women typically also, interestingly enough, they said that this was a, a protection factor is that women choose less lethal means. Yes. Right. So it, yeah, they because choose you could it on purpose, right? think you're going to overdose. When I did the, when I first started the distress center, I was on the phone lines because we all have to pay our dues there. And we would, certainly would have calls. You did have suicide attempts. So not as common as people think because it's not a crisis line. It's a distress line. Right. But people would call and say, oh, I just took a whole bottle of aspirin or just whatever. Because they really did think that they could kill themselves. Now, yes, you can definitely make yourself really ill. You probably need to have your stomach pumped, all that stuff. 
but and especially if someone has already has some experience with narcotics, like the more experience you have with drugs in your body, of course, the more it will take to do something to make it lethal. But I think there's a lot of people out there who might just feel like, yeah, I, oh my God, I, I might've killed myself, but no, you probably just made yourself really ill. And yeah, that could be like, who knows? Maybe it is about women not wanting to have it be such a dramatic, violent way, but maybe there's something else going on there that some part of them is, yeah, just take this method because then it may not be permanent. Like, so it's a bit more safe. Yeah. Right? It's, I, and maybe I'm wrong. This is my own personal opinion. Mm-hmm. But I'm thinking maybe it's more of a cry for help. Yeah, right? it's for a, sure. It's, I need help, but I don't have any other way to say I need help. Yeah. I don't want to burden anybody. I don't want to be a problem. I don't want any of these things. And, and so for them to reach out and get help, Maybe that's the way they do it, and it's yeah. it's not gonna it's not gonna kill them. No, but it will make them sick. Yeah, and then everyone will give them attention and make yeah. them feel better, hopefully, by giving them support and all these other things. But then maybe that's perpetual now too, right? Because that person may then also keep going down that same path, and then you end up with multiple attempts yeah. over the course For of sure. a period of time. So I, I'm going to finish off the section about uh, women, but at the end when we talk about different programs and different Mm -hmm. services and stuff like that. We'll we'll come back to that as well. We'll talk more about that. Moving on to men, the statistics that I have, two to three times more likely to commit suicide than women, more likely to use highly lethal methods. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes when I was doing my research, it was guns. And then there were some interesting stats that I read in the United States, for example, which we know have the Second Amendment to carry weapons and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Each state has their own kind of rules and regulations when it comes to how they manage and, and mm-hmm. control guns. And I saw a statistics, I didn't capture it, but basically they took this trajectory and they said the amount of suicides done lethally by gun mm-hmm. was significantly less where there was higher restrictions on having guns in the home. Mm. And it seems obvious when you say it out loud like that, but it was like a lot of people are a lot of, so a lot of people kill themselves by gun, but a lot less likely if you have gun control. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it makes sense. It's not that easy to get a gun. So, but if it's just in your house and you're covered, sure. Maybe you would think of using it, but are you really, if you don't have any guns in your house, you've never held a gun. Are you really going to pick up a gun and shoot yourself? Maybe, but maybe not. But probably a lot less likely if you don't have one yeah. accessible to you. So yeah. I thought it was crazy. So you made a comment about women and the expectation to be a certain way. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think of it until you said it. But I was it, it made me think of another uh, thing that applies to men and it's toxic masculinity. Huge topic. A huge right topic. Now, right? Yeah, huge right now topic. And for the last couple of years, yeah. Yeah, so obviously it, it got coined from, I think, I don't know if it was coined beforehand, but definitely because of the whole Me Too thing, yeah, it, for this sure. toxic masculinity comes up. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, and I'll come back to toxic masculinity in a second, but I, I'm wondering, is are you going to hear it first today where it's tos- like maybe toxic maternal instincts or something like that yeah. where that's the flip side. That's the sure. female version of yeah. being told that, you need to be like this and this yeah. because that's, you're a woman and that's what yeah. you do. And I, yeah. And I feel like even though there's a lot of expectations for women, I do feel like society sets it up where we're a little bit, the idea is that we're a little bit more free and not that there aren't expectations for us, but sometimes with men, it seems like there's very stringent and it's like a small box. And if you want to be outside that box, whether it's because you want to wear some color that someone thinks men shouldn't wear or you're not seeing the world through the head of, head of the norm under the lens, like whatever it is, there's more 
like constraints and I guess more pushback where I think with women we have like a woman is going to wear a suit people might be like oh that doesn't look great on her but nobody's really going to have an issue with that Annie Lennox was doing it back in the 80s and stuff but (laughs) if a guy wears a dress that's a whole other thing for a lot of people not for everybody but for a lot of people right and I do think there's so if there's like a belief that women are a little bit more free and we can do whatever and it's not going to be as I don't know regulated or something then maybe women don't notice it as much but of course most women I think would tell you that they feel like they have all kinds of things that are expected of them and all kinds of things that they're trying to live up to whether it's crazy beauty ideals or whatever it is and especially of course with social media like that's just makes it even more difficult Mm -hmm. so I, I yeah I feel like maybe yeah with maternal stuff and just with being a woman itself there's stuff there that's expected of us but it might come across differently than Mm -hmm. just for men so back to toxic masculinity defined as a set of attitudes and ways of behaving stereotypically associated with or expected of men regarded as having a negative impact on men and in society as a whole so obviously it's we believe I think as society, now we're starting to shift and we're starting to see this as toxic and not good. So this whole importance on manliness is being based off of things like strength, lack of emotion, Mm self-sufficiency, dominance. And I'm wondering how much that plays a role in mental health with men, but Mm -hmm. also domestic violence. There's other things that kind of stem from this. And so some of the overemphasis uh, of these traits may lead to also some imbalances and some of those examples can be things like aggression because it's we've been raised to not show emotion the only emotion we're allowed to show is anger yeah and then that just breeds it being okay for us to be aggressive yeah that's just how we are sexual aggression and control Mm-hmm. or control can come from this as well. Showing no emotion or suppressing your emotions, hyper-competitiveness, needing to dominate or control others, a tendency towards or glorification of violence, isolation, low empathy, entitlement, and chauvinism. There's mm-hmm. The list can go on about yeah. all the things that that we're starting to understand more about toxic masculinity and what it means raising young boys to be men yeah. and being more open to being more open to being less stereotypical. Yeah, for sure. Some of the, I guess, protection factors or prevention factors, they used it interchangeably. So protection is like the idea that you protect yourself from harm because you are something. So for example, mm-hmm. in women, it was when you're pregnant, you're protecting yeah. yourself because you're carrying a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, prevention in a man is going to be more things like creating a support network and having friends and buddies and not being afraid to ask for help. That's probably like single handedly as a man, Mm -hmm. it's likely the hardest thing to do. Yeah. You feel like you are not a man. if You need to ask somebody else for help. Yeah. And that's just the whole problem and being able to use the resources that are available. When I first started doing my research on this, because I, I had this mentality that men have issues we're, high, we're much higher, substantially higher in, in suicide rates, and there's likely no resources for us. Right. That was how I started off my research. Sure. Then I found it actually more difficult to find women-specific resources. There's mm-hmm. lots of services out there that are general for yep. everyone yep. that likely more women will go to. Mm-hmm. But in terms of actual services designed by or for men was actually 
there was more. I found more easily. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know if that's because over the last 10 years, it's just been a focus and there's been more men stepping up and more people stepping up to try and put focus on that. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm starting to see these things. But yeah, I thought that was, I thought that was interesting. I started off thinking like, oh, we probably got screwed over. There's probably nothing for us. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I could probably go on a big tangent about why I felt that way from personal experience, but it was a pleasant surprise to mm -hmm. see multiple updated modern and relatively available services. It was crazy good. Yeah. So what are some of the risk factors that men go through? You definitely captured a lot of them. Like I think asking for help is huge. And even if the man himself doesn't feel as much struggle with that, maybe other men in his life, like maybe his dad is more like kind of old school or whatever you want to call that. And mm -hmm. is looking at him saying, really, you should be able to fix this yourself. Like, why are you reaching out what what we talked about before why are you airing dirty laundry because women like we we gossip we chat we talk about all kinds of stuff and it's not like men don't men do that too but certainly it's not as socially expected like people just expect women to talk about everything and all their issues and problems and stuff and people just don't expect men to as much and there is a whole thing about people just yes you can be born in a, in a certain body and yes maybe make that decide to change <clears throat> The sexuality and gender and that's a whole other discussion as well but there is a whole idea of just okay yes i'm born a woman i'm born a man but that doesn't mean that i have to put on a shackles and right from birth someone says you're going to be this way i have a friend who she long time ago she was a like a neonatal nurse and she would say people would have babies that were like hours old days old and if it was a girl people would come in and they'd be or the parents like sometimes it was the dad sometimes mom sometimes grandma oh what a cute she's like a little princess i should be a ballet dancer she's so delicate and the little boy would be like oh he's so strong strapping he's gonna play football and it's like Both this kid pounds. is like hours <laughs> or days old like maybe they won't want to do those things and this was years ago and i'm sure there's been some changes but i you know i work with children so i hear people talking to children i hear what i say to children like you and we're trying at the city, we're trying to get away from, hey, don't call them girls and boys because maybe they're going to make a different decision. So let's not like put that on them. But of course, you know, old habits die hard. And <laughs> sometimes you are, are saying stuff to, to kids. So there's all those things. But I think also for men, yeah, like definitely not having a good support network because some guys have amazing support networks, whether it's with their partner, their family, their friends. But not everybody does. And if you don't have that, how do you build that? Like when you realize you need it, especially if you are in your 20s, 30s. It's one thing to make friends when we're younger. It can be challenging, but usually it's a bit easier. The older you get, the harder it is to make and maintain friendships. So I think that can be really challenging for guys. And just like feeling feeling vulnerable and feeling like they want to expose those parts of themselves. That can be really challenging. Those are some great points that you bring up. Thank you. So the next thing I want to talk about specifically is some of the risk factors that men have when it comes to suicide. I've listed a few here and I'll get your opinion on some of them as well. So one of the big ones that showed up was military service, so mm. a big military presence, but not just not veterans is also right. part of that, but people coming back from 
war and mm-hmm. having PTSD and those kinds of things. Yeah. It's probably a lot bigger in the U.S. than it would be in Canada. A lot of our missions are peacekeeping missions. We do see a lot of stuff happen, but in the U.S. it's it's slightly different. So I think mm-hmm. that there's probably some military service issues there. A breakdown of a relationship, and it's not just any relationship. Sometimes it can be marriage. Sometimes it can be a long-term relationship. Loss is loss at the end of the day. There's that. There's financial or legal issues. There's illness. But then they also get into other things like physical discomfort. So there's some people who have medical issues that maybe they feel like this will just never end and conflict with family or friends, the illness of a death of a family member. So that could be pretty traumatic for some people. Loneliness. Is there any other risk factors that you can think of that maybe come up to mind or can you speak to any of those specifically? For sure. Yes. Like traumatic loss can be very serious. And and if you've experienced a loss in, in your family or in your loved ones of someone who's killed themselves, Especially if you're a child, and it doesn't really matter what age you are, but if your parent decides to kill themselves, that can dramatically increase your potential risk for that. It doesn't necessarily mean that's going to happen, but it definitely can increase it, because in a way it just takes some some of the stigma and some of the taboo sort of nature away from it, because it's your parent that's killed themselves. And I think for men... Yeah, just like the whole military thing that you were talking about. Again, just not really being always encouraged to share and to just be vulnerable and to be able to talk about things. Uh, Yes, things are changing around that, but there's still a lot of it isn't just as accepted for men. So when they're going through something, like who are they turning to? Who do they, who can they reach out to? And yes, it's great that there's all the supports out there, like you were saying, that you found things, but for the average person, they may not be aware of that and realize like that there is some help out there. They might just really think. Because most people, when you're going through a hard time, you really think you're on your own. That's a really common human feeling. And, and it may not be about suicide. It can be about whatever it is that you're struggling with. But you probably feel like you're by yourself. You're on your own. And like you are literally the only person who's ever felt like this. So I'm sure, let's say, if you do something about post postpartum and all that stuff, when you speak to mothers, I'm sure they'll say, I felt like I was the only new mom who ever felt this way. And then they get some help or they talk to people and they realize, oh, no. Everyone goes through this. Everybody, yeah. <laughs> but you just, like, you don't, that, I don't know, that part that, like, connects all humans together is quiet, that voice or something. I think when you're going through struggles and you really just tend to believe that, yeah, I'm the only one struggling with this and nobody else is going to understand anything that I'm going through and I won't be able to talk about it because they'll just look at me like I'm crazy or something. Mm -hmm. So then you just don't talk about it. So those are some great points. Military service might also be a breeding ground for toxic masculinity, which Uh, I saw an article not too long ago about that. And maybe there'll be room for uh, another episode on the military service as a whole, but I do have a special place for the military service. Mm -hmm. So I do want to be sensitive, but there are some cultural changes that need to happen there. And and that might, that might help. So what are some of the warning signs and some of the things that I'm reading all seem very much the same about anybody who's struggling Mm -hmm. with, with uh, thoughts of suicide. And that's things like extreme mood swings, uh, again, talking about suicide, death, or dying, increased use of drug or alcohol. I don't really notice a difference between a man and a woman experiencing the same mm-hmm. issue. The warning signs are the same. Yes. If you're noticing somebody you care about, whether they're a male or a female, 
you're going to notice these things yeah. and it's always best to just go and do your best to go and be there for them. Don't tell them, call me if you need me. Yeah. They're not going to call you. <clears throat> no, they won't. So just, if you see it, you notice it, do everything in your, in your power to be there for them. Right. That's right. Be around them, be there for them. Yeah, for sure. The reason why this became an episode <laughs> was because you lost your dad. Yes. How old were you when you lost your dad? I was nine when my dad killed himself. And so he killed himself on August 20th, 1982. And we had been living in the States until about probably 79 or so, 78, 79. And then before we moved to Toronto, we lived outside of Perth, Ontario, and a community called Brook Valley. And that's where my uncle was, my aunt, and my grandmother was there. So we went there, and he loved living there. He loved living out kind of in nature, because it's just really a bunch of people who built their own houses and lived <laughs> off the grid way before. That became a thing. A thing, exactly. And he was a carpenter. He had built houses in the States. We'd, we'd lived in Rhode Island a lot, and he was born in Rhode Island. And he uh, worked with people there. And built some beautiful houses. I remember going to a house that he built in, in Maine, I think it was, and it was like one whole side of it was glass, I think. It was he did amazing things. And <clears throat> he had been struggling. Uh, my mom and dad weren't together, but they were friends. And we had actually been going we were living in Toronto, so this was like in the summer of eighty two. We just recently moved there. But we were going back to Brook Valley just to visit. And we had a house. Some of the houses have names, so I, I I don't really have a lot of memories of my mom and dad being together, but I have great memories of living with my dad. And we tended to live in houses that had names like the A-frame and the rectangle. <laughs> and so there wasn't anyone in the house that was the rectangle and he wanted to stay there. We were staying at the house that my mom had in Maberly that was nearby. And so we just dropped him off and he was good. And you know, I think he said, oh, we'll see you tomorrow and all that. And it seemed fine and now of course I don't really know had he had that whole planned out to take his life there he, he probably did but I'm not sure of course never know that his mother my grandmother who was an amazing person she died at 101 she's very strong so she actually discovered the body and he had hanged himself because there was a set of stairs and they were sort of open so he was able to hang himself in those and at first she did think that he'd cut his throat because the rope was so like deeply embedded in his neck. So I can only imagine, and I honestly ha never really talked that much with my grandmother about that, but I can only imagine what, you know, she went through and her trauma around that. And I, I knew my dad had mental health issues. And honestly, there was quite a bit of that on his side of the family. My grandmother had depression. There's different things. And we were very open about that. We talked about all that kind of thing. And I knew that my dad wasn't always happy, but I didn't have any kind of worries about him that weekend. But I remember I was in Maberly, I was on the front lawn, and I had brought a girlfriend with me from Toronto. And we were hanging out, and my mom you know, left at whatever point and came back, and she got out of the car. And I just knew. I remember inside I said to myself, something's happened to Kenny. I don't know that I said Kenny's died, but I knew. And I called my mom. Linda and Kenny and uh, I was like yeah something's happened to Kenny and she just came up to me and I think she said that Kenny died and we went to hug each other and I remember inside even though it was nine I was like I'm going to be here to like emotionally help and support you because my mom just fell into me 
and and he had attempted suicide before but as I learned when I started doing the <clears throat> the volunteer work with SSP even if someone has attempted 10 times 20 times it's still very shocking when someone does actually kill themselves and mm -hmm. so it's not oh yeah they've attempted before so not a huge surprise it's that's never the reaction you have and it was really yeah it was just traumatic but I didn't actually go there was some sort of service he was cremated but he didn't actually go to that I think my whole family just felt it would be really hard for me I don't have any memories of any kind of funeral or anything like that but there were things the community had made him a quilt and he was alive when they gave it to him because it was a gift because he'd rebuilt a school for the community mm. and so I actually have that quilt because everybody in Brook Valley, or most people that live there, had, had made a square on the quilt. So I have it. I'd actually love to hang it out up one day in my house. It's just it's a large, full-size quilt. It's going to take up a whole wall. It would take up a whole wall. But I, we went back to Toronto, and then I started school, because that was August. And I started school in September. And I was recently talking to my mom about some of these things, just to make sure I had some of the details. And, mm -hmm. and I told her, I remember, and I really liked this teacher a lot. I think her name was Mrs. Dubinsky. And she was great, but she kept on asking the whole class, like, oh, how was your summer? What did you do for your summer? And I just, I was brand new to the school. I didn't really, I know a few people, but not that many. A little bit shy. And I wouldn't really say anything. And she just kept on pressing. And I, I believe I finally said my dad killed himself recently. And who knows how she reacted to that. I don't have a memory of that. Or, or, But what I do remember about that is eventually my mom and I both got some counseling help, but we didn't get anything right away. It wasn't like the school did anything with that that I know. So we didn't really talk about it and try to start working through some of those issues until I was a teenager. And that's when I started feeling depressed and feeling suicidal thoughts and ideation and then decided, okay, this is something that probably need to deal with and I still have clients sometimes with SSP who will come and they haven't talked about the grief of losing someone and uh, maybe it's been five years maybe it's been 10 years I've, I've talked to people it's been 20 years since the loss and they sometimes will come to us because they actually have physical um, response in their body like they're they feel like they're might have a heart attack even though they're in their 30s because their heart's racing so much and then when we start talking about things we're able to say well, you can't like grief is not something that you can just put somewhere and it goes away <laughs> grief is very persistent and grief wants you to deal with it so if you don't deal with it in this way it will come out in another way mm -hmm. and it will make sure that you deal with it mm -hmm.